everybody, and welcome back to The Brink as we come to you for another episode. Two episodes in the space of a week. What is going on? Anyone would think we have some more time on our hands or something along those lines, but it's exciting to be back for a regular Sunday episode, even though I guess if you're listening in Australia or New Zealand, it's kind of Monday now, but... I guess this is a new norm. Sunday, for me, is a little bit uh, later than it is for you. So I guess that's how it works. Because I am speaking to you from the land of true north, strong and free, the country that is Canada. And it's taken me a long time to get in here. And when I say a long time, it hasn't even really been that long. It's just been a lot of effort and uh, interesting times in the last couple of weeks. Um to get in here and I sort of tease a little bit in our last episode that we would be updating you and kind of giving you some lovely stories about how we got here and we will be doing that this episode and it's going to be a fun old time for you to find out and also uh, you're just hearing my voice obviously Mallory not with me as you can probably tell she's not going to be on this episode this week but uh, we'll we'll bring you up to speed with her situation as well on this episode and hopefully in the coming weeks bring her back in a long-distance format as well, if we can get her out of bed. We'll see how that uh, plays out. But, uh, yeah, interesting times we are in right now, very interesting times for the world and everything that is happening out there. So, um, as always, it's probably going to mean a somewhat of an interesting episode of The Brink today, probably a little bit more of a shorter episode just today, as it's a lot of it going to be based around me talking. And let's be honest, you don't really want to listen to me talking you want to hear some of the other good bits in between so that is uh what is going to happen today but it still will be entertaining we've still got a few lovely little flashbacky bits and fun bits to keep you excited as well as a special guest we're not going to always have an episode without anybody joining us in some form or capacity we're going to hear from colin everyone's favorite actual canadian male uh direct from winnipeg so uh that will be on this episode and uh, just a general, chilled, relaxed episode for you to enjoy wherever you are listening to us around the world. No doubt in isolation, having some fun, just sipping on some tea and just uh, enjoying this newfound life that we are all finding ourselves in at the moment. So uh, exciting times. And as always, we here at The Brink are here to make it even more exciting for you. Well, one thing that we are going to continue to play for you, even though we didn't play for you in the last episode, but hey, we had something different, is Days of Our Pies. And I guess a couple of weeks ago, I uh, undersold our last episode that we played. I, I thought that we had only got a couple more episodes to go of the season, but the last episode we played, of course, was the finale of season two, which means we're up to season three. This is uh, going to be the resolution of the big cliffhanger from the end of season two. And setting some new things up for pretty exciting Season 3. So without further ado, here is the very first episode of Season 3 of Days of Our Pies. Previously on Days of Our Pies. My, oh my, Billy, I'm so proud of you, you little stud muffin. Oh my gosh, Lisa, my one night stands from all those years back. And Billy's mother, you're alive? Yes, I am. Like pastry in the oven These are the days of our pines Six months had passed since the dramatic finale of last year 
the presumed dead Lisa Muffin had dramatically returned and explained that after all that time, she had actually been on vacation in Hawaii and wasn't really dead. After that explanation, things had been strangely peaceful in Ramsey Bay, with not a lot happening at all. Today, however, was Ramsey Bay's annual day of celebration, with the entire town congregating in front of Town Hall to see the new Prime Minister David Bartlett speak to the people. Greetings, my fellow Australians. It is with great honour that I am here in the beautiful Ramsey Bay to celebrate your annual day of celebration. I am confident that each and every one of you will enjoy the festivities we have in store for you right now, starting with a performance from Australia's greatest ever singer, Nicky Webster. As Nicky Webster begins to perform, Billy Muesli Bar and his mother Lisa Muffin begin to dance with each other. My oh my, Billy, you are one fine and dandy dancer. You make your mother proud. Thank you, Mummy. I let it over and Daddy. Where is Daddy, Mummy? Why, he went over there to get us some fine and dandy hot dogs. As a matter of fact, here he comes now. And why, look, he has brought with him Jennifer and George Pyman, Frank Kingman, and ex-Prime Minister Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yay, hot dogs. I love hot dogs. I know that people that are with Daddy. But Mummy, what is that shiny thing above their heads? All of a sudden, a shiny circular disc begins to hover over the group's head before lighting up and exploding into a large fireball, sending everyone in the town square in the air and all over the place in catastrophic circumstances. Oh my lord! There was a huge explosion! Billy! Billy! My darling son, are you okay? Yes, baby, I am fine. But Daddy, where is Daddy? Oh my God, Billy. Look, he is dead. Along with Frank, Roy and Jennifer. No, he can't be dead. I just got you back. I can't lose him too. No. Jennifer, ah, oh, Jennifer, no. Not again. I can't lose you again. It's okay, George and my Billy. We can survive. We have to pull it together and get Ramsey Bay back to what it used to be. But who would do such a horrible, ghastly, stupendously malicious thing? I don't know, but I would go well find out. As George, Lisa and Billy all pull themselves together and begin to mourn the loss of their closest friends, a car pulls up with two large men in suits who begin the search for the Prime Minister. Bartlett, Bartlett, Prime Minister Bartlett, can you hear me? Don't be so darn stupid, Adam. He's dead. Nobody could survive this explosion. There are more blood and guts here than at a Liberal Party leadership challenge. Oh, ha ha ha! So not funny. I'm not laughing. You just did, Dweepface. Shut up, you wrinkly, pimply face, or I'll do it for you. Would you two stop fighting and just help me up? Oh, Prime Minister, I knew you were alive. Of course I am. I ride bicycles and I have a good Facebook page. And I am confident that this explosion will not hurt my popularity. Who cares about your popularity? We need to help this town. No, we do not. Not at all. This was just waiting to happen. And it was no coincidence it happened today. What are you saying, sir? This was planned? That's exactly what I'm saying, Adam. And I'm confident Ramsey Bay is finally no more. Why on earth has David Bartlett destroyed Ramsey Bay? Will Lisa, Billy and George mourn their loved ones for long? Who on earth are Adam and Gary? And how is it possible that so much has happened in early episode one? Find out next time on Days of Our Past. Exciting stuff happening in Ramsey Bay and... What does that mean for the rest of Season 3? I don't know. You'll have to keep 
finding out by tuning in every single week because that's what we want you to do here on The Brink. On this special edition of The Brink, special because it's just been me talking, uh, we thought we'd better bring someone else in to talk because you don't like me much. Uh, but you like this man. He's a man who is in my country now. It's Colin Hilding. Hello, Colin. Welcome to Canada. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Correction, you're in my country, but uh, we'll just we'll roll with this. Yeah, I am. Welcome. Thank you for welcoming me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> um, now get out! I, I'm not leaving ever again. They won't let me back in. It took me so long to get in here. Like, goodness me. Um, how, how's, how's Manitoba? How's Winnipeg? You guys, uh, are you the only province under a state of emergency right now? No, I think we followed Ontario and BC. Because I remember... Um, uh, BC had announced it like that morning when Manitoba did. It was just a couple hours earlier. And uh, I, w- I was telling people, it's like, oh, yeah, BC just declared a state of emergency. You know, oh, but we're not there yet. And a couple hours later, Manitoba state of emergency, which is funny because if you look at, you know, the, the case of infected people, deaths, whatever, Manitoba is far behind almost all of Canada, which is a bit of a lie because there's some issues with our testing. But uh I think that maybe it was a result of that, you know, just sort of the premier knowing there's a lot of issues with the testing right now. We're not getting testing done quickly enough. Uh, our screening is way too strict. So they just let's just take the precaution. Let's let's not be the ones to, you know, be the first to pull the trigger. Let's be the second guys to pull the trigger or the third guys or whatever. But yeah, we weren't we weren't far far behind the provinces that are actually in really bad shape. And are you then forced? Does that mean like you're on lockdown? You can't leave the house? I mean, kind of what are what are the rules in what you can and can't do there in Winnipeg at the moment? Uh, it's really no different than anywhere else in the world. I mean, that's we're, we're called friendly Manitoba. That's the tagline <laughs> of Manitoba. It, it, it very much does hold true. Uh, I think it just became, you know, the recommendations of no gatherings over 10 people or, or 50 people or whatever, which now they've upgraded to 10. Uh, and they started, I guess, giving resources to people where everything in manitoba just seems to be okay we just we're we're doing what we're supposed to do it's not like there's been a lot of enforcement so far but the talk sort of begun now saying hey we're gonna have to start enforcing these things you know uh i mean grocery stores now have to have a person who is checking to make sure that you're uh, uh six and a half feet apart in between lines so they've got tape down they have people who are enforcing that there you know they won't let you up to the till unless the other person is completely cleared. Uh, but I don't know if anything's actually been strictly enforced yet. It's just sort of like, okay, state of emergency, this is what we want you to do. And everybody's like, okay, <laughs> carry on. How very Canadian. Um, just, yeah. you know, sure. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's cold. I would have done that anyway. Is it still snowing there? Because, like, when I was in Minneapolis, there was kind of dregs of snow, gross snow still on the ground. And then the day after I left, Anthony sent me a picture where it apparently snowed, and I was very angry. And then when I flew connected into Calgary, Calgary was very much still covered in snow. So I can imagine Winnipeg, surely you're still covered in snow, aren't you? Uh, we had a bit of snow. I mean, we still have snow on the ground. You'll see it mostly in people's yards, but the streets are clear. The sidewalks are clear. Like, even in my yard, just sort of the edges of the, the lawn, you can see grass or, you know, slush now, dirt, whatever. Uh, but there, there's mounds of snow everywhere you go. We did have a snowfall um, twice in the last week, but both times it pretty much had melted within a few hours. It's one of these things where it starts snowing in the morning, but by the time lunchtime comes around, everything's melting. 
so it, it's it's just wet everywhere now. It's not even slippery or icy. It's just wet. Just wet. Winnipeg's new slogan. It's just That's wet. No longer friendly Manitoba. It's just wet. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, though, has been your view on everything that is happening, Colin? Voice your opinions on, on the world situation right now, because I'd love to hear your perspective of everything. Yeah, I mean, we could go on all day about, you know, uh, what's do. happening. We've got the time. <laughs> going all week two weeks what go for this it. is a two week long episode now <laughs> um i mean we sort of talked you know on another podcast which you can listen to off the podium i don't know if that's aired yet uh olympics podcast but there's so much criticism that goes around for you know how business are handling how government's handling and you know i kind of refuse to give into that because as i said in that other show there's no way anybody can prepare for this you know i've got people i work with who are just like furious so i can't believe that this is how they handled it and it's like how would you prepare for this you know and once you make a decision you can't necessarily go back so you know it's not the 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 day-to-day things like that to frustrate me it is the not understanding particularly with manitoba why we are so far behind the other provinces when we declared a state of emergency and when you see what's happening not just in other countries but in the united states where there's you know in, insane testing going on even the other provinces where there's just ridiculous testing and here in manitoba i know of people who know people who say that these people that they these people that i know that they know <laughs> knowing that he knows that i know i am um, so they know people who have all the symptoms. They've been sick for over a week. They have every single symptom. They don't have anything that, that does not fit coronavirus. And they're calling, and they're not allowed to get a test just simply because they didn't travel recently. So it's like, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't seem to be a lack of tests. It seems to be a backlog of the labs where they can't keep up with the testing. So people are just being turned away because I went by one of these testing centers, and they're saying, you know, we've had however many thousand tests and the parking lot's empty and they've got one guy they're just waiting for a car to come in and i'm like well this clearly isn't an issue of we don't have the tests it's just they can't keep up with it so ours seem to be going all over the place and you have these other provinces that are in the hundreds already and i believe manitoba probably would be if we could actually get people tested but the very least you know we have people we're friendly manitoba people are sitting at home people aren't going out for no reason you know you get it every once in a while nothing like what's going on in bc of course with everybody going to the beach but that's just because you know it's too wet here (laughs) it's too wet is it something that is that you're bothered by like are you scared of getting coronavirus is jamie scared of getting coronavirus uh i mean jamie a little bit more nervous just because we have you know a three-year-old and twins that are less than a year old but when I show her, okay, there's there's only one case, I believe, in Canada of a child getting it and they were 10 years old. Like, I, I guess from all speculation, your chances are very low if you're young. It's sort of the older you get or uh, the worse health, the worse it could be. Uh, but it's the more caring of it that I think she gets nervous. Of. I'm not really nervous at all of getting it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm arrogant enough to be like, oh, I lived through that. But, you know, you look at the odds of what you could die from from this and what you could die from from that. But it is, I think, the caring thing that... I'm just more cautious. I think the area for me where this hasn't affected me so much personally, you know, even to the point where, you know, I'm going to be one of only a handful of people that are still working in my office. And it's not like I was hesitant to do that uh, because, I mean, I'm a bit of a germaphobe already. And I also don't like contact with people too much. That's actually very (laughs) true. The times I've, I know that from you. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm not a touchy guy. Um, I, and again, I, I wash my hands constantly. So I've had multiple people who have told me, 
you know, it's so weird. Like I'm washing my hands all the time now. I'm trying to avoid people. It's like I've come down to your level, Colin. Like it's it's regular everyday life for me. For me, the only difference is I'm just watching what other people are doing. The, the hilarious thing about this, I read a as we all are. Let's be honest. We're all reading articles. We're all you know just this is what we're doing. Mm. Particularly those of us sitting around not doing anything at the moment. But I read a very good article about the way that this will affect us moving forward. Is that you think about two moments in the last 20, 30 years of history. You think about the HIV AIDS epidemic, which kind of then set out a new string of basically everyone from that point on. Hey, yeah, okay. I'll use a condom. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And then like 9-11, like, okay, bit more secure at the airport. Fair enough. Like now this is going to be like, okay, I'll wash my hands. Like you yeah. should have been doing this already. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? Like, handshaking, I think, is a big thing for me. Are yeah. handshakes just going to go away completely? You know, let's say this thing blows over. Well, people now are not in the habit. People shake hands because that's normal. It's not like every culture has handshaking. You know, so if you take society out of shaking hands is what you do every time you see somebody, what are they going to do in six months when this does all blow over? And, and again, just going back to being a bit of a germaphobe, you know, I'm not like a severe germaphobe, but I have always preferred to high five a person than shake their hand. So people will go to shake my hand and I'll put up, hey, high five. You know, I'm like, that's only a split second of contact as opposed to holding it, you know, or it's just a weird thing I do. But, you know, I'm going to hopefully start a campaign the when we are allowed human contact again let's replace the handshake with the high five you haven't been doing that stupid elbow bump thing yet oh that is the <laughs> dumbest thing ever like social distancing so let's do something where our hands don't touch but our faces come inches from each other because it's the only way to get your elbows that close it's um it's fascinating i mean this this will be something that you will be telling casper and and your twins about and your grandkids about in the future that I lived through this, you know, and well, hopefully, unless we all die. But, um, I mean... Oh, you know what happens on this podcast, Ben? Why'd you say that? (laughs) I said we. We're going to die together. Um, Oh, okay. That's fine. But, um, yeah, like, it's... And it's just the, the rapidness, like... You know, you and I over on the Oz Network download now, I mean, we were planning this, we were planning that, like, we're double Oz 7, we're ramping up, like, we're we're weeks away from new Bond. I mean, we should be a week away from new Bond right now, Colin. Um, And just, it's, the thing that I find most interesting, and I'm sure you're, I'm not alone, everyone else is feeling this, is like, I think back of how much has happened in such a short space of time, and like, all of a sudden, it feels like it was like six weeks ago, but you actually think about it, it's only a week ago. Like, it's, like, things are just, it's... It's insane to think that we aren't even at the end of March yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I was mentioning to you off the air, you know, how uh, it, it literally was as quick as on a Monday. Okay, so things, you know, um, might be happening quickly here. We're thinking people might start working from home. And the next day, I'm one of, like, two people left in the building and or t- two people of any type of authority left in the building. And it's like, all right, so we're all at home right now. Uh, try to get everybody out. Thanks. <laughs> and it was literally overnight. And everything that's happened since then has just been such a blur that, I mean, I've been looking at, at my calendar, you know, at work or when I'm at home and I'm like, has it really only been like a week and a half since this really took off? Yeah. But yet it feels like you, know, you just settle in and this is the way it's been forever. And, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe it maybe it's different in different parts of the world. Maybe places where there is more panic, or because Canada, I'm not going to say we, we were ahead of the game, but you know, when cases started popping up, they're like, let's take the lead from Italy and China and Korea and Spain, these countries that have already been hit hard, and let's try to beat what happened there. And and the other thing too is you had a birthday this week. I had a birthday the week before. Yeah. Um good time of a birthday, <laughs> wasn't it? We we had a lot of fun on our it birthdays. Was weird. 
Yeah, uh, it was it was really bizarre. I mean, I had a full day off on Sunday, which was the day before my birthday. And I just told Jamie, I'm like, Jamie, if you've got presents for me or anything like that, just give them to me today because tomorrow's not going to be so good. You know, you have to go to work. You have to do this and that. And you can't go anywhere. And, you know, as parents of a three-year-old and, you know, newborn twins, it's not like we get a lot of opportunities to get out of the house anyways. So if we could just do something as simple as, you know, go out for dinner and then go to a movie, that's all that, you know, I usually plan for my birthday. And suddenly the movie theaters are closed and the restaurants are closed. And I'm like, all right, well, uh, I think that, uh, you know, a rerun of Cheers is starting in half an hour on TV. I can PVR. <laughs> what else do you do on your birthday? Yeah, I had a 36-hour birthday. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just let go of it. So do you, will you eventually have to isolate or because your job, you can once you're all done at the office, you can just work from home. So it's kind of, you know, things are still yeah. the same for you. I mean, I was technically supposed to be working from home last week uh, until <laughs> things happened very quickly and I was left in the building with many people there. Um, but now, you know, I am still working at the office, which for me, for my job, it'll make it easier to do just because I do have a three-year-old and twins here. Uh, I'm still going to be splitting time a little bit. So a couple days a week, I'm going to you know, going to work two hours later, you know, as opposed to just right at the beginning of the day. But, you know, without mentioning where I work or what I do, I mean, it's it's deemed an essential service, even though I just am in an office. So it's going to be very quiet there. You know, it's funny because uh, one of the, the managers that was there was basically after everybody had sent, been sent home. You know, I'm actually kind of enjoying not having a person ask me a question every five <laughs> seconds and come up to my desk and you know, she's just listening to music. I'm like, I can listen to my own podcasts all day. And there's nobody there to bother me or complain that it's too noisy. That's why we had spikes in our listeners late, lately. Uh, where yes. You and I have been listening to ourselves. So, um, yeah. good <laughs> job. Uh, finally, before we let you go, obviously NHL uh, so far on hold. How, how was that shaping up for the Leafs at that point? Were you were you on a roll? Was this was this going to be the year? Is this going to be they cancel the season? Oh, that was going to be our year. We were finally going to break it. it. It's been weird since the coaching change, where they they fired the highest paid coach in the NHL and hired a guy who I think is only like thirty five or thirty six years old and had no you know actual NHL experience. They go on these incredible rolls where it'll be like a nine-game winning streak, and then they'll go on a six-game losing streak, and it's just, it's it's very inconsistent. So it was one of these things where I think the Leafs had pretty much locked a spot in the playoffs, whether it would be you know as number two or as a wild card in their division. Uh, but you know what team they would have to play would determine a lot. And then if they were going to have a four-game winning streak or a four-game losing streak, you know the playoffs if they still happen, I think it's a guarantee they'll make the playoffs. It's just going to depend on you know which team shows up, the good team or the bad team. <laughs> They're very Jekyll and Hyde uh, since changing their coaches early in the season. Which, um, yeah, I mean, at least your coach wasn't racist, right? So, yeah. you know, that was... I mean, I knew your coach would be racist. Yeah, of course, of course it would be my team that would be a racist coach. <laughs> so, um, And one last question, literally, who's winning Survivor Winners at War? I don't know if you've watched this week's episode. Oh, yeah. Have you watched this I week's have. episode? Okay. Um, I mean, I'm going to base it more off last week's episode, um, which I'm really hoping if she can avoid a target now, it is going to be Denise, because that may have been the greatest move I've seen in the history of Survivor. So I, I'm all in for Denise. 
I'm just blown away because I for sure thought Yule was getting a great winner's edit and yeah. then what the hell? <laughs> I'm like, I for sure thought Wendell was going and I'm like, what? Like, I was completely blindsided by that vote. So uh, we'll talk about, about that more on the Oz Network because I think we're going to bring them back soon. All right. Uh, thanks, Colin. Uh, and we, we might talk again next week. I don't really have much else to do. So hopefully you won't either. Well, don't we have another you know, 12 days of this to go? Oh, right. Um, keep going now. <laughs> so, what's what's the shelf doing? Uh, <laughs> I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Well, you've heard Colin having a bit of a chat. You've heard me tease, and you've heard me say some uh, things in regards to this situation that is happening right now. But I think it's, it's important to kind of have a bit of an update on my perspective and the Brink's perspective and everyone who was involved in us where we're at right now, how we got to where we are and everything else in between because it's been a uh, a very interesting couple of weeks to say the least. Um, if you listened to our last episode, you would have heard a lot of content, of course, from myself and Sam at the Grand Prix uh, two weeks ago now. Seems like it was a lot longer ago. And uh, you would have heard a variety of updates in regards to how that all played out. And that, that was kind of real time. That was almost very much real time that all that was happening because really everything that has happened uh, in the last couple of weeks has just been daily. Uh, things are just happening daily and you just can't keep track on kind of everything that's happening uh, with everything. So for me, it all started really going to Melbourne for the Grand Prix. Things were normal. Uh, looked like we we're going to have a great time at the Grand Prix that weekend. The Thursday I was there, you know, generally Sam and I have a sort of a, a nice exploring day of the city, a bit of shopping, walking around, and just uh, enjoying everything that Melbourne has to offer. Things were going nice and swimmingly. And then all of a sudden, Thursday evening, late Thursday evening, we were in bed. Uh, about 11 o'clock on that Thursday night, and the news broke that a McLaren team member had tested positive for COVID-19 and that McLaren had withdrawn from the Grand Prix, throwing the Grand Prix into doubt. Well, that obviously turned out to be correct because after only a few hours sleep that night, we were up at 4am trying to follow all the news as it developed. Didn't get any idea of anything that was happening, as you heard in that uh, clip's during that Grand Prix recording and eventually went to the gate and while we're at the gate, Grand Prix off, cancelled, boom, done. So that was kind of the first uh, little situation that happened. Okay, no dramas. We explored Melbourne, had a couple of days off in Melbourne. It's going to be fun. Explore the city. We like Melbourne. It was going to be great. Next day, after having an enjoyable day in the city of Melbourne, I had uh, been away from Sam for for a little bit. He'd, we'd, he'd gone to look at one thing. I'd gone to look at another. And uh, met up with him, and the first thing Sam says to me is, oh, did you see the news? And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what's happened? And obviously, because I was living in New Zealand, it affected me. Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, had announced that it would be mandatory for anybody entering the country, no matter where you're from, if you're a New Zealand citizen, resident, anything, to go into self-isolation, 14-day lockdown as soon as you arrive in the country from midnight Sunday night. Now, my flight back into New Zealand was Monday morning, so therefore that would have affected me. And there was a a, a whole lot of confusion going around the situation, uh, how I was going to get home because I was actually flying into Queenstown a couple hours from where I lived and all this kind of kit caboodle kerfuffle and all this sort of stuff. So... Long story short, rushed, got another flight, left Sunday morning, arrived back in New Zealand on Sunday. Cool. All right, situation, fine, that's it, done, back home. Weekend didn't go to plan, but hey, cool, back home in New Zealand. Um, Still got 
six or so weeks until I have to leave to Canada. Easy. Monday morning, wake up. The announcement has been made that Air New Zealand have cut basically 85% of their international flights from March 30th onwards for at least three months, putting our little journey over here to Canada in a little bit of jeopardy. So phone calls made, basically moved everything forward. That meant we were going to be on a plane on March 29th to move over to Canada early. So there you go. That that had happened. Options were possibly could stay in New Zealand for a little bit longer, but we thought, no, let's get over there early, get it over and done with. So, okay. So that then obviously led to a few things having to be done, having to cancel a bunch of things, get like gear and get our shit into gear basically. And, you know, organizing all this stuff. Still quite fun, easy, get around it, too easy. You know, we can work it out. We've still got like 10 days to clear out of there and, and move to Canada. Easy. Nothing else would change, surely from that point. Well, next morning, Tuesday morning, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, decided that he would close borders uh, to anyone except for Canadian citizens and permanent residents. Now, there were a few stipulations to this rule, one being that if you were an immediate family member of a Canadian citizen or permanent resident, you were still eligible to enter the country. Now, remember that because that is going to be an important little caveat that you're going to have to remember in just a few moments. So, uh, again, panic discussion, work it out, and it was decided that it would uh, be best probably for me to get on a plane earlier and basically get there ASAP. Try and break, uh, beat the border closure if possible. So uh, tried to, earliest flight I could get into basically would get me in sort of a few hours after the border closure. However, we were informed by a New Zealand that due to us boarding, or myself boarding the plane before the shutdown, I should be fine. So I had basically less than 24 hours to pack up everything that I needed to survive until Mallory got there, supposedly at that point, like a week and a half later. Next day was my birthday, funnily enough. Thank you for the birthday wishes. I appreciate it. Um, Drive up to Dunedin, get in the plane, no problem. They check me in, check my visa. Everything is fine on their end. This is their New Zealand's end. I should be eligible to enter the country. Fly to Auckland, get in a plane from Auckland to San Francisco because I had to connect to San Francisco. There were no direct flights to Vancouver. And... This is when a slight little issue then decided to rear its little head due to a certain airline, and we're going to name them, it is United, who decided to not follow correct procedures, take things into their own hands, and refuse me entry, despite the fact that I had evidence that I was an immediate family member of a Canadian citizen, that I was eligible to enter the plane, and that Canadian officials would let me in, decided not to listen to me. So clearly, as we can tell, United have made a big fuck up, and just... uh, cut things into perspective right now trying to fight tooth and nail right now to really get some form of compensation for their massive cock up even though as you can imagine it's very difficult to do so because united are a big company and they think their shit doesn't stink so therefore they think they're in the right and won't listen to any rhyme or reason so it's a very frustrating time with that so i was stuck in the u.s luckily a former co-host of ours on this show mr anthony Morant, lives in the u.s and i was able to jump on a flight at significant cost to Minneapolis to go be a refugee with him for a couple of days. Through a lot of fighting and through a lot of effort uh, from uh, Veronica, who you heard on this show several weeks ago, Mallory's mother, contacting a local MP in Victoria, the city where they're from. Uh, There was a lot of assistance done by the wonderful Elizabeth May, who was able to get some words into some uh, high-ranking officials in the Canadian government about my eligibility. Uh, It was all but confirmed that I will be eligible to enter the country. So we decided to try it again. And a week ago on the Sunday, rebooked some flights, uh, this time through Air Canada, basically that went from Minneapolis to Toronto, Toronto to Calgary, Calgary to Victoria. And 
I got in uh, through barely uh, any issues at the border. I was in, and here I am now, where I've been basically in isolation for about six days. So, um, good news, I'm here. But, just as we thought everything was great, everything was hunky-dory, Mallory due to still fly on the 29th, everything fine, Jacinda decided to put New Zealand into stage four lockdown. Basically, everyone in the entire country has to be indoors for four weeks, completely shut down. Now, of course... We are questioning this. Okay, well, does this affect Mallory? Surely it doesn't affect her because she's catching an international flight to go home with a couple of domestic transfers from Invercargill up to Auckland. Calling Air New Zealand, we were told specifically that, nope, she would be fine. She would be able to make those flights. Cool. No problem. Great. Nothing to worry about. 24 hours ago, uh, we get a phone call from Air New Zealand saying that she will not be eligible to make those flights because she's not essential services. She will not be able to make those domestic connections to Auckland, no matter what she said. Basically saying that Mallory would now be stuck in New Zealand for four weeks. Again, despite being clarified by Air New Zealand that she would be okay. And through this issue, the other kind of kick in the teeth is that if they knew that this was going to be a factor, they didn't call us, Mallory, 24 hours beforehand, before this lockdown at midnight on Friday for travel, could have called her and said like, hey, we've just noticed you're on this flight. You need to get to Auckland now. But did they do that? No. So, another grievance. We've got it with another airline, which we're trying to sort out, but we'll see how that goes. Through a lot of fighting, through a lot of uh, emails again, back to Elizabeth May and other officials, the embassy in New Zealand. Uh, we had uh, Ministry of Health from New Zealand just trying so many different avenues that we tried uh, all day, basically, yesterday, to see if we can get some sort of letter to get her through. Basically, long story short, it, it's a no. And it now does appear that Mallory will be stuck in New Zealand for four weeks until some form of uh, travel ban does get lifted at least. So uh, minimum four weeks, of course, because this lockdown may be extended depending on how the situation goes. So it's very frustrating. It's a very frustrating time for for us. Uh, I realise it's a frustrating time for everyone right now. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who are, who are doing things a lot worse uh, under the circumstances. But I think it's an important thing. One thing that I'm learning in all this situation uh, and we're all learning as we go along because this is, as I keep hearing the words, unprecedented times, is that there seems to be some sort of notion right now that we all just have to basically grin and bear this and suck it up and put up with it because we're all doing this for the greater good. Now, while I understand that, I understand the logic behind that, it is something that I also feel is important to say that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be frustrated with this situation. It's okay to get angry and mad and realize that this is affecting people's lives outside of a disease spreading through the world. Because, okay, number one priority around the world should be human lives. 100% agree with that. However, at the end of the day, this is also affecting human lives outside of this situation. And people are seemingly saying, well, suck it up. This is how it is. We have been out of pocket significantly with this situation, but that pales into comparison to other people who I've seen have lost tens of thousands of dollars due to travel restrictions, being stuck in places, and are getting no assistance through anything along those lines. Again, people are moving through this as best as they can because you've got airlines, you've got governments, you've got these places that are having to do things on the fly. But this is where I think it's important to point out that this is an issue, that while things are being done last minute, things are being changed and all this sort of stuff, there are other things at stake here which people aren't seemingly able to, to fathom, who aren't seemingly able to think about this for five seconds. 
situations that we've had to deal with in the last couple of days that could have been avoided through people not thinking through, not going through proper things that they should be doing or double-checking or triple-checking on the on the midst of a last-minute decision, which basically puts people into a sense of panic. And this is why we have a panic right now in communities, because these decisions are being last-minute, made last-minute, and it's just, it's it's ridiculous. So my, my point in what I'm trying to say here is that I'm getting fed up with people telling me this is unprecedented times and I just need to grin and bear it. I don't have to grin and bear it. If I'm angry, I will be angry. If I'm frustrated with this, I will be frustrated. I'm entitled to my opinion on this situation and I'm entitled to be mad at things that are happening right now. Again, there are people out there that are worse than me. I understand that. But there are also people out there who are better off than me who are sitting there in front of their computer being a keyboard warrior and essentially saying, oh, boo-hoo, suck it up, when nothing has affected them. So this is where it's basically getting to the point where in my eyes i will be angry i will be frustrated and i will continue to do so and i do not want people to tell me otherwise because as a person anybody out there is entitled to feel however they want to feel emotionally and this has been an emotional time in the last couple of weeks it has it has brought me to tears it has made me angry uh it has caused a certain amount of stress on myself on and on mallory too and no matter what people say about this being unprecedented times and you just have to grin and bear it, well, I'm sorry, we are human beings, we have emotions, and this is affecting us. We will show those emotions and we will be speaking out against this if we want to. There's my rant. I've been waiting all week to have a little rant about this because it's it's just it's so frustrating to have to just grin and bear it and go along with the herd and be like, oh, yes, this is all for the greater good. Sure, let's all say it's for the greater good, fine. But I guarantee you in a year's time, two years' time, we're going to be looking back at this as a society thinking that this was a little bit of an overreaction to something that, while it's serious, maybe isn't as serious as everybody is making out it to be. Controversial opinion, there it is, but I said it. And, you know, again, opinions like assholes, we're all entitled to them. I'm not saying I'm right, I'm not saying I'm wrong. That's just my opinion on the matter. So... There you go. All right. Therapy via podcasting. Simple way of looking at it. I like it. Anyway, let's go back into something else and we'll come back to you very shortly. All right. As we've calmed down, classic interview time. Robert Darby is a Hollywood icon. Uh, we interviewed him a couple of years back for one of our shows, 007, a James Bond podcast. Download now. Great show. Also tied it in with the Oz Network, our TV and movie podcast, which, of course, you're very familiar with. I don't think this has actually ever been played on the brink. So technically, this isn't a brink interview, but we're still going to play this anyway. Uh, I actually listened to this during the week and uh, forgot how much of an enjoyable interview it was. So he... Best known, if you're a James Bond fan, for playing um, Fan Sanchez in the movie Licence to Kill, the head villain in that movie, but he's also been in The Goonies, Die Hard, uh, plenty of other movies out there too. Steamed Hollywood career, and is also known a little bit as being a, a Frank Sinatra, uh, I don't want to say impersonator, but sort of uh, releases albums singing Frank Sinatra songs and getting out there as well. So here it is, our interview from a couple of years back with the esteemed Mr. Robert Adavi. Massive pleasure right now to be able to introduce our next guest to you. He's a star, a Hollywood legend who has been in more than 100 films and TV series. He's also been in video games. He's a singer. He's got an album. He's touring the world right now. There's there's a whole lot we could talk about right now about his amazing career. But, of course, you're listening to 007, and you know him mainly from that series, of course, as playing the great Fran Sanchez in Licence to Kill. 
kill, and we're hugely excited on our 50th episode to welcome to the program Mr. Robert Darby. Robert, welcome to Double Oz 7. Thank you for your time today. Uh, well, thank you, my, my dear friends. Thank you for having me, and uh, I appreciate you guys, uh, of course, doing a show that's based on the most successful series of films in the history of cinema. Exactly, and we, we are here to we, celebrate we know it. what that is. Yes, James Bond 007. Uh, that's our show, 007. He's actually the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just apparently claiming that uh, Bond loves our show that much, but uh, I mean... That's we a- are pretty much on the same level of fame, let's <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Be We're often confused for, for James Bond. But, uh, Rob, as I mentioned, uh, of course, our listeners know you very well for playing the role of Fran Sanchez in Nice and secure. It's been 28 years now since the film uh, was released. Incredible to think it's been that long. I mean, going into the film when you first were cast into it, were you a fan of the James Bond series before you were actually cast as Sanchez in the film? What fan of cinema is not a fan of the James Bond franchise? <laughs> I think every kid has looked in the mirror. I don't. Every actor, every actress, every director, every writer that I've talked to. Every, I mean, even, you know, I, they don't have to be actors in the entertainment industry. Everyone's looked in that mirror at some point in their lives and said, Bond, James Bond, shaken, not stirred. <laughs> uh, or they wanted to play the supervillain in some way. They wanted to play, I mean, I can't tell you how many people come. So, yes, the first time I heard of James Bond was from my, uh, I was on a baseball team, uh, probably in about eight, I was maybe about nine years old. And, and uh, the coach was Ed Kirkman. And don't forget, JFK talked about the James Bond films and the book, Ian Fleming. He had brought that up big time. And uh, on His Majesty's Secret Service, I think that's the book he was talking about at the time. And um, anyway, so that was the first entree into the books. I started to read the books, and then, of course, every new Bond film you would run to the theater to see that opening title sequence and watch uh, to see how James Bond saved the world. How did your involvement start with the license to kill? Like, uh, were you brought in to audition for this or did they have you in mind? And what was the development of the Sanchez character like when you were brought in? Well, first off, you had, again, when I was born in Astoria, Queens on Long Island and then grew up in Dix Hills. My mother was born in Southampton oddly enough, from an Italian immigrant family. Now, also part of watching the Bond films when I was younger, it always said, Albert R. Broccoli Presents. And you had that. At one time it had Broccoli and Saltzman, but then it had Albert R. Mm -hmm. Broccoli Presents. And you always, and I would always say, who is this Italian fellow? Who's this Romulus Broccoli? (laughs) And then Covey was born in Astoria, Queens, by the way, where I was born. And he grew up in Sag Harbor. So... The cut to Los Angeles, mid-80s, late-80s, Goonies. I do Goonies. A big fan of the Goonies film was Tina Tina Broccoli, Cubby's uh, daughter. Wow. She was a big fan of Bond. And Tina said she got to know me through a a place where uh, we all used to hang out by Cafe Roma, Mickey Rourke, Schwarzenegger. I brought all these guys to this restaurant. Still people are going to it to today in Beverly Hills. But, uh, so I'd go there, and, and Tina said to me, oh, my dad would love you. Uh, and then she found out I was born in Astoria, Queens, and all this other stuff, and Italian. And then 
she arranged a dinner for me to meet her father and mother, stepmom, Dana. So Albert and, and Dana. And uh, I hit it off with Cubby beautifully. And uh, a couple of years later, I had done a film called Terrorist on Trial that was way ahead of its time, the United States of America versus Salim Ajami. I played a Palestinian kidnapped by the United States government to stand trial for acts of terrorism. And uh, I played the, the title character, and Sam Waterston played the prosecutor, pre-law and order, and uh, Ron Lieben played a Jewish defense attorney put there to defend this Palestinian terrorist that, uh, that was running for, that was in trial. And uh, courtroom drama, written by Levinson Link, two of the greatest names in television up till then, the you know, major writers, last script they wrote together, produced by a guy named George Englund, who was subsequently Brando's, one of Brando's best friends, and also ran Brando's company, Penny Baker, back in the day, and directed and produced The Ugly American with Brando. Wow. And this was George's brainchild. George was always ahead of the, the, the topics. He also did a thing called Shoes of the Fisherman, but very top-shelf ideas. Anyway, that film had come out, on, uh, on TBS one evening, Sunday night, I think it was, three-hour special. I was on the cover of the L.A. Times, New York Times, and it raved about my performance. And Richard Maybaum was watching the show, and he called up Cubby Broccoli. And Richard Maybaum said to Cubby Broccoli, put on Channel 2 right away. And Cubby says, I've got it on. He goes, that guy, that's the next Bond villain. And Cubby says, I agree. And they called me in the next day, and I met with Michael Wilson and Cubby Broccoli, and then subsequently, they set up a meeting for me to meet with um, uh, 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 Timothy Dalton, and then the uh, and Michael Wilson and uh, uh, and the rest and uh, Bingo. Wow! I was uh, offered the part, and they said that Cubby said to me, "You're going to hear a lot of noise on the street because every agent in the world is going to go after the thing, and we'd like to create a little bit of suspense around all of it." But you're the guy, and they. You know, Dave, uh, we, we talked about the character, developed certain things for it, and it became a terrific character. And uh, the, uh, Michael Wilson, because uh, there was a writer's strike, had to take over the writing for it, and it became a great uh, piece. And, and how does that feel as such a fan, then, of the Bond series to get that that offer? I mean, that must be, I mean, you know, too incredible to obviously pass up and, and to play the villain as well, the, the, the main antagonist. I mean, that, that, there must be a lot going through your mind at that point, Robert, going, this is, this is incredible. Yes, I mean, there, there were, prior to that, I mean, I had gotten notoriety for my acting, people liked it, my mentor was Stella Adler, I was in the actor's studio, so I had gotten, I'd gotten some, a lot of uh, a good uh, encouragement, so to speak, and also even the director, Robert Aldrich, earlier in the 80s, when I did Hill Street Blues, and I did a play in Los Angeles, I would, I, 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 Robert Aldrich called to meet with me, and he offered me a three-picture deal, one of the pictures, and it's a long story, I won't go into it today, was Man on Fire. That was initially me. And then the other book I gave him was Pete's Honor. We were going to do a three-picture deal that they signed me to. And then Robert Aldrich passed away. So I had had a shot almost at really becoming an entity. And now the Bond film was a uh, reawakening of, uh, uh, of, of, of having the... Because there's no film bigger than, than Bond internationally. At that time, there was nothing. It dwarfed everyone else. I mean, that year, licensed uh, Lethal Weapon came out, and Batman, and a bunch of other stuff. But yet, overseas, of which I went to, I I went to Australia, 
Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane, Sydney, uh, Melbourne, I, I, all over Australia to promote the film. Good to hear. Um, and all over the world, mm-hmm. you know, from Asia to uh, to Europe. Did you go to Winnipeg and, uh, in Canada at all, Robert? Did you did you head north <laughs> up to Winnipeg? Did not. No, we we missed Winnipeg. Ah, uh, damn. But I've been to, to Toronto, of course. There you go, many Colin. times, and to Woodbridge. Oh, uh, and uh, um, as a matter of fact, I have a a star on the Italian Walk of Fame. Wow! In uh, in, in on, it used to be in college. Now they're moving it to Woodbridge, I think. Where where there's a huge Italian contingent. Wow. Contingency, uh, with, along with Phil Esposito and, and uh, some other wonderful people, great people. But the, um, and I've been at Falls View Casino. I did a huge concert there at Falls View three nights uh, in Niagara Falls. But anyway, the, the, uh, getting back to that, uh, yeah, I mean, doing a Bond film is, uh, uh, that was just, uh, yeah. And it's still, because there are films that, that go around today, but every two years or every, time a new Bond film comes out, everyone looks at all the past Bond films. Mm-hmm. And there's some kind of retrospect done on those villains or that, you know, again, Timothy Dalton, the Bond film we did, the second film, License to Kill, which was a, we went back to Casino Real to uh, where Bond and the villain were mirror images of each other. And that was mm-hmm. a very, you know, interesting thing that was so i played even though sanchez was a colombian drug lord so to speak i played him as if he was if james bond was a colombian drug lord wow wow i mean (laughs) mean, uh, uh, at least with that with that adjustment a little bit you know what i'm saying yeah uh, now of course the actions that he does don't let you uh do that and timothy you know had the edge of of how the villain would be in terms of revenge and I think one of the lines that we discussed and I put in there with Michael Wilson was loyalty is more important to me than money. Hmm. And uh, that was something that, you know, because it became this guy's Achilles heel. It was his Achilles heel was his need for loyalty. And then uh, at least Sanchez's. But anyway, the, um, as you, and, and as you see, License to Kill now looked at by people in retrospect is a much more interesting film, perhaps, than they thought at the time. I just want to go back for a second uh, really quickly on something you said. When you said you were working with Robert Aldrich on something, you mentioned Man on Fire. That's not the same one that came out like decades later with Denzel, is it? Yep. I had it first. Wow. That's a long <laughs> story. And, and, and the first one that really had it was Scott Glenn. That Rob, Bob Aldrich, here's what happened. Here's the story of that. My agent was Phil Gersh. He used to represent Humphrey Bogart. Gersh Agency in Los Angeles, very respected, very powerful, very good family agency. Now it's bigger than it was then, but Bobby Gersh and David Gersh were the sons. Phil Gersh, uh, I asked them to try to get me the rights to a book that was written under a pseudonym. Guy's name was A.J. Quinnell, out of London, England. And uh, they tried to get the rights for me, but they couldn't get the rights. They said somebody had And uh, what happened was uh, then... Two years later, or a year and a half later, Phil says, uh, Bob Aldrich wants to meet you. And I go, really? Now, I love Bob Aldrich because he liked doing films with men doing manly things. You know what I mean? He did the, uh, I, I think film today is suffering, to be honest with you. Hollywood is suffering. That's why they go to Australia, Canada, London to get, to get guys to play guys because <laughs> the, 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 the males in, in, in America have been effeminized. 
and they all uh, they're all terrific but they all look the same there's really no there's it's there's something that that transpired over the years that have taken away those great faces that they still so they go to london and they go to australia or canada to get leading men a lot of the time i often get asked robert um, i just i just too busy to to currently do anything so yeah i know what you mean <laughs> but you know what i'm saying yeah i mean uh, maybe you do maybe you don't but i mean anyway so now what happens is i meet with bob aldrich and i'm telling him about he goes what kind of material do you like and i tell him he goes you've got incredible effing taste young man <laughs> and he tells his son bill get the script and there it was. He had the rights to Man on Fire. And he had a great script. And he gave me the script. He goes, this is why you're here. Um, I want you to play the lead character, Creasy. And because I told him about it already. And we made. And then I gave him Preetzee's Honor later on. Preetzee's Honor was another book mm-hmm. that I read in galley form. And, but he died. He died. And we were supposed to do a romantic comedy anyway. So while he was in pre-production of doing Man on Fire, he passed. That then went into the hands of an Israeli director, I forget his name, and they did a, a movie with it with Scott Glenn that is a, is a very, uh, not, a, not a great film. And then later on, they did the movie with Denzel, which is a better film, but not as good as what Aldrich had, in my estimation, or what Aldrich would have made from it. Wow, there you go. There you go. That's, that's incredible to think that. And this is before The Professional. Don't forget The Professional has elements to that film. Yeah. So when they didn't make, when they didn't make that, they then took and they re... So anyway, so, it's, uh, it's, uh, so my, my career had a little bit of a misstep there. And then uh, after the Bond film, when I should have maybe waited for the right films, I... You know, I whored out, and I did films maybe I shouldn't have done. <laughs> anyway, the rest is uh, tainted history, so to speak. Tainted history. <laughs> I mean, just going back, you, you're mentioning uh, about reading Casino Royale and kind of obviously Le Chiffre and that, you know, being a mirror image when it came to portraying Sanchez. I also read that in, in preparation for the role, uh, obviously given the, the drug cartel connections that Sanchez has in the film and, and the type of character, that you yourself, uh, to research and get ready for this role, had to get involved with some quite interesting characters in preparation for, for this film. I mean, what was what was that like? How do you go about finding some Colombian drug lords? I guess you don't just get the phone book and try and dial a few. I guess it's a bit more difficult than that. Actually, you'll find all types in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and, uh, and especially in Hollywood. It was the 80s actually. too, wasn't it? Anything so. you mean, <laughs> Yeah, end of the 80s. So anyway, so, yeah, you just question. I heard somebody was a Colombian guy, and I said, really, he was from Medellin. And he, I think through a model, I think through one of these, one of these girls that became a pleasure wife of Adnan Khashoggi or something, there was some, there was, and I heard that she had an ex-boyfriend who was dealing, and uh, he was from Colombia and Medellin. And I said, oh, can I, uh, can I talk to this guy? And he knew then the... Uh, the um uh what is it the uh, architect a guy that did uh escobar's house wow and uh <laughs> wow and that, and then yeah then i then i talked and then subsequently in the 90s uh in the early right around then you know right early i, I met pablo escobar in in uh, brazil wow how does that how does that go how how do you go into that meeting someone like that and i guess Try and stay calm. 
<laughs> well, first off, I didn't know I was meeting him. Wow, okay. <laughs> I was in Brazil doing a film with a fake director. I was in Manaus, which is, uh, Manaus is northern in Roraima, part of Brazil. I was doing a film with Mika Kaurismaki, great uh, Finnish director, him and his brother Aki. Aki gets a lot of awards, and Mika's uh, like, uh, he's kind of like uh, commercial and art, a uh, little different. But anyway, he did this film called Amazon, Amazon. And it was about the Garimpos, the gold diggers in the Amazon rainforest. And uh, I wound up playing this character, and we were there for like nine weeks. Uh, and I was in Horaima, in Manaus, where the rubber barons used to be. They had this beautiful, the Hotel Trapacal, this amazing uh, place built right in the middle of the jungle. Kind of like a Fitzcarraldo thing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, there I am. And uh, I'm in this big dining room after being in the in the deep jungle in Tepecan and Boa Vista for like a few weeks where there was just old monkeys, old monkeys and, and uh, Finnish crew with uh, high on vodka. You know, <laughs> it was funny. But. So I finally get to civilization and I'm there in this wonderful banquet hall. And um, a couple of guys approach me and uh, they the film had just been released in Brazil couple of weeks earlier wow and um it was like very big over there and they said to me oh robert davi we would love to uh, invite you our friend uh, uh he knows you're in town because uh, there was publicity on it would love to invite you to the villa and have something to drink and maybe meet and talk i said oh and he says oh no does no matter but we take you uh and i was i says huh and he says i said he's very interesting man and uh you know, the, he will uh, love to have this and you'll be rewarded for your, you know, whatever it is. So he, not rewarded, but something that led to, I think I was going to get a Rolex watch. You know what I mean? If I showed up. <laughs> right. That kind of vibe. Right. All right. And, and, be, and being, you know, here I was in the rainforest and they said, oh, this is interesting. You know, all right, I'm, I'm up for an experience. So they took me and they drove me for about 45 minutes into the jungle. And then an area little dirt road kind of thing in the middle of the jungle. And then all of a sudden this area opens up like there's like a, a gate that has trees on it that is hidden. And then another long road that's, uh, paved, uh, into the jungle. And then this villa in the middle of this area and guards. And then all of a sudden it becomes apparent, you know, uh, that I'm going to meet somebody interesting and then i meet this guy uh pablo escobar wow and he told me some interesting stories he, he liked the film he liked the idea of the loyalty is more important <laughs> to me than money he mentioned that uh, he said and then he mentioned he says you know and i knew this he goes in my house in medellin we have a uh, in my i have a, one of the houses i had a a uh, in the middle of the house there's a track goes out and in and he's, we play, I play with my friends, we play Lulu, which is, I guess, a card game there, and we drink Aguadiente. It goes, and every, every few minutes you hear, and we stop, and we watch the gate of the Pasofino horse. Now, there's a special horse that they, Pasofino horses, you know, half a million dollars a piece, based on the gate, they're left, goes together they're right you know so there's no jiggly very mm -hmm. easy to ride in the mountains and indigenous to that area 
so he told me that would be interesting to have the Pasofino horse to show the appreciation of these beautiful animals. And then he said, uh, I tell you my mentality. When I was young, and I'm a businessman, when I was young, I wanted to buy a discotheque, and they didn't let me buy the discotheque. They didn't sell it to me because I was in, they said I was unsavory. So they wouldn't sell me the discotheque. And I offered them double the money, they wouldn't sell it. So what I did was I built, a couple of years later, the exact replica across the street to a T. <laughs> and I charged no one any, any fee to come in to drink nothing and put them out of business. Wow. <laughs> because they didn't sell it to me. This is my mentality. Wow. Anyway, so that was a very interesting uh, peek into his, his, a little bit of his psyche. And, and I can definitely imagine then, Robert, that you're glad he liked the film. Um, I mean, I couldn't imagine if he's, <laughs> if he's brought you to his place like that, only for him to be like, I have some problems with the way you played that character. I didn't like it. <laughs> well, that's like what happened to the CNN reporter recently. You hear what happened to him? Yeah, was that the... Um, that wasn't Anderson Cooper, was it? Was it? And he, he got all the way in deep with that? Um, am I thinking of the right person? No, another guy, Aslan something or other, went to some kind of cultish thing, mm-hmm. some religious cultist, and they made him eat a monkey brain. Ah, and, right, no, and different he was one. talking yeah, too much. And the, yep. and the chieftain, you should read that article. It's kind of frightening. Hmm. I mean, yeah, something could go sour. But no, 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 this was... No, I knew the film was... The, the, you know, I portrayed the guy, you know, if you look at it, no act of violence. There's only one act of violence that Sanchez really uh, does uh, that's not in response to something that's done to him. There's only one act of violence. All the other acts of violence, Sanchez is responding to something that was done to him mm-hmm. first. So if you're going to play the game, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, uh, can you, do you know the one act of violence committed that really... Um, wasn't committed to Sanchez. Now, uh, uh, do you want to uh, guess here, Colin? With you, Lupe, you... right? No. The... Lupe, first off, the whipping of Lupe should have been erotic, but they couldn't do eroticism and, uh, and violence right. to women, especially back then. Look at Fifty Shades of Grey. The game, it was a game that they played, that Lupe played with Sanchez. That was a game, a sexual game. Really, mm. that's what that was really intended for, because... Bonds, as a whole, have all this a sadomasochistic undertow in the books. There is a bit of that in there. So it was a, a method of, of eroticism where she knew she would get punished if she was a bad girl. You know what I mean? So there's that whole, but, but that, was never, that, was, that could never be played, uh, you know, in the film. That could never be. So they had to put tears in her eyes, you know what I mean, as opposed to being something that was... But still, no, Lupi... Uh, she knew what she did. I mean, she went and she screwed somebody else, mm. you know, to make Sanchez angry. My, my, my guess you know? my guess would be... Um, how much, when the you... whole thing was, how much do you love me, Sanchez? Mm. You know what I mean? Will you risk your life to come and get me? You know what I mean? So that's the cat and mouse. So he risks his life. Yeah, I was going to guess uh, when... Um, you uh, and I, I'm going blank on the character's name. When you put the guy in the the uh, the pressure, the hyperbaric chamber. Oh, Crest. Crest. Oh, yeah, no, Crest. that's not it either. No. We're we're big Bond fans here, <laughs> no, uh, Robert. We're that, huge. Um. <laughs> that was done. That was done because Bond set that guy up. Bond, but was the one that set uh, um, uh, what's his name, Anthony Zerbi's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget his name now. 
No, there's Milton another. There's, a, there's only one act of violence, really, that, and it's just because the guy was an irritant. Yeah, remember? You want me to tell you? Yeah, you're gonna have to because we're we're really failing our um our status <laughs> here right, as the James Bond line. podcast here, Robert. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you the line. I'll give you the line, and you tell me who it is. Time to start cutting overhead. Uh, no, that wasn't Felix. No. Uh, near the you end of the movie. Something that uh, Truman, Truman Lodge. Truman Lodge. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I win. <laughs> <laughs> the accountant. That was the only act of violence because he was an irritant. Yeah. Million, that's another great expense. Another $30 million. You know what I mean? Well, that, that was a good one. I mean, no one liked Truman Lodge, did they? Uh. No, he didn't. He was a little. He was a little irritant. That guy. You know what I mean? So, but but that was the. But, but think about it. Nobody liked him. But he was the one act of violence that Sanchez really commits. That you could say is unjustified. It's a good point. Mm. It's a, I mean, they, I mean, it's just. It's interesting, sort of looking at it that way. And um, you know, I mean, we've done. Uh, we we obviously did our film recap on License to Kill, and we you know we we're doing film commentaries, Robert. So we'll we'll do that at one point. But I mean, with that, that's um. I, I mean, Colin, there you go. We didn't have that take on it at all. So uh, we've 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 learned something today as well. And here's something else to add. I don't think, if I'm not mistaken, there's ever been a film where someone who was already dead was shot. Now Sanchez, and this was again an improv. Remember when what's his name takes. Uh, the uh, cyanide pill. Mm-hmm. Carrie here at the Gawa played him. All right. And what do I do? He dies, and I pull up my gun. I go, "Iwa puta," and I shoot him mm-hmm. because he didn't give me the satisfaction of killing him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Sanchez. So after that, after that moment, and you guys could research. This would be good. I'd like to know if this is so. But after that moment, other films had people killing guys that were already dead. And you started the trend. I, well, Bond. Look, it, I've been in trailers on big movie sets where the directors and the producers were watching Bond sequences for their action films to do takes on them. And the thing about Bond and something that Cubby always wanted was that the wardrobe, there were a few times when they made the wardrobe of the, of the moment. And then they said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to make it so you can watch this film in 20 years and not have it feel that dated. You know what I mean? In terms of music and wardrobe, in some instances. You know, outside of even License to Kill, you know, you mentioned earlier how you'd done the Goonies and everything. And I mean, as you detailed, like the complexity of the villain, you really had this great string in the 80s of playing, you know, these iconic villains, even though some of them probably shouldn't have been villains. I mean, the three main ones, at least for me growing up in my childhood, I mean, I can't go through this without asking about the Goonies and Die Hard. I mean, and... Of those three movies, you know, you obviously had the biggest, most complex role in License to Kill, but, I mean, the fan bases for Goonies and Die Hard are out there as well. Which one of these do you usually get the most recognition for? That depends. That, that, that always depends. I think because there's no sequels, that there's a... Uh, it's, it's always... And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you what, what, what uh, Josh Brolin said on uh, the, the um, Jimmy Fallon show one night. Jimmy Fallon's a huge Goonie fan. Mm-hmm. And he had Josh Brolin on with a bandana. He, Jimmy Fallon wore a red bandana, Jimmy Fallon. And then he presented one to Josh. Now, Josh Brolin's done a lot of other films, as I have, you know, and he's done bigger films, you know, uh, some, some interesting things, you know. But yet, when Josh was asked, what film do people most go to you on? It's Goonies. Mm-hmm. And um, now, 
it depends on where you are in the world. See, the interesting thing is if I go to certain parts of South America or, or, uh, or Jamaica or the Bahamas or different areas, like even uh, Bangladesh, let's say, or India, you know what I mean? There's a huge bond contingency around the world or Norway or Estonia. Uh, then other areas have a huge Goonie contingency or a diehard, or, you know what I mean? And then there's showgirl. But I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it, it, it depends. It depends. It's a uh, there's a there's a drawing pool from a lot of different things. And how did you find you know going through those three movies, which really were just over the course of a few years, and playing those different villains? Like, did you carry experiences from one to the other? Well, they were all different, weren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. look at. This. I mean, you in, technically in, should in, have been a good guy in Die Hard. <laughs> I mean, you were the FBI. <laughs> Right, but you know, that was at a time, you got to realize the psychology behind that film at that time. Bruce Willis had one more shot to be a movie star. His other two films had failed. His other films had failed at the box office. And Bruce Willis, because of his uh, character in Moonlighting, had a smirky kind of presence. Great presence, but smirky. Right? Mm-hmm. So, in Die Hard, they had to make him likable when i first I, I saw die hard with arnold for the first time at 20th century fox and when i come on the screen who's in charge not anymore arnold gets mm-hmm. up in his, his chair and he goes this is fantastic this is great yeah <laughs> gonna say, hey, this is fantastic and then as, as the as the film went on and the character became more of a you know it, it dissipated he looks over at me and goes you idiot what do you do here how come you turned into this idiot now? I thought you were going to save the day here, and you're, and you're this fumbling FBI guy. What the hell is going on with you here? He was upset because, <laughs> all right, and I had a raw deal with Arnold back in the day. So here you have, you know, uh, uh, they had to make the FBI guys stupid, of course, because they, they couldn't come in to save the day because it, it made Bruce Willis, you know, I mean, and, and, and look at him walking around naked and, and, and uh, was brilliant, a brilliant uh, project to put him in. And initially, you know who was supposed to do that character who got the book first to write? Sinatra. Yes. As Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. They went to Sinatra first for Dirty Harry. Wow. That's incredible. Different, again, and, uh, going back to what you're talking before about uh, Man on Fire, I mean, just how different these, the Hollywood history could be, I guess you would say. <laughs> Well, look, at least my history. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly... I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine these things. Robert, I, I'm going to say, um, I mean, this is... We, we know, obviously, right now, uh, we, we don't have much time, but I want to take this opportunity right now to just quickly say thank you so much for joining us on our 50th episode, but we've got plenty more questions. I'm sure our listeners, after hearing this, will have questions themselves. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely get you back on to talk more about Licence to Kill and your, your outstanding career because, again, uh, there's so much more that we can cover, and uh, we, we hope that we can we can get you back on to, to talk more about this again uh, very very soon. Well, if you can uh, sell some albums, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, we we will sell you heaps in Winnipeg, Hobart. You will go off the charts. That that's how much we'll sell for you. All right, because I'm also you can also get my uh, AB, you know ABC in Australia mm-hmm. as my ac- record. Yes, I toured Australia. Plug plug the record right now. I mean, I've got it right in front of me here in terms of what it's called. But I mean, I, I think it needs to come from the man's mouth. Darby sings Sinatra. Yes. ABC Records. You can go on mm-hmm. find it in Australia, and it's also in Canada. Uh, Darby sings Sinatra. The uh, uh, Maple Core. It's on the label there. 
You can get them uh, in Canada. You can also just go to Amazon or iTunes and be able to download uh, the Davi Singh Sinatra. And we're going to we're going to uh, tag it on our site. We'll tag it for people to download, and uh, we will definitely yeah we'll, and we'll get you back on uh, definitely to chat more about this, Colin. Yeah, and uh, I'm hoping at some point we get like a Strangers in the Night sequel to this. Is that going to be on like the follow up? <laughs> well, I don't know. Why you like Strangers in the Night? It's absolutely like one of my favorite songs of all time. I, I actually am a pretty big Sinatra fan. I just love that song. A lot of people love that song. That was one of his bigger hits too. And I've stayed away from it, but I think because it's so, so uh, uh, people like it a lot. I may I may do it at some point. I haven't done it yet. I mean, I've got about 200-plus Sinatra songs and Great American Songbook stuff that I do but I mean, in my shows. Uh, but I, I may put on uh, Strangers in the Night at some point. People like it. I just did... I'm going to be on Mark Stein's show, markstein.com. Uh, uh, I just did with Don Black, a guy named Don Black. I was on there with Don Black. I did a version of Born Free. Wow. That is a very stirring version that you guys should check out at some point supposed to be running at some point here in the near future so definitely but anyway guys let's do this again it was fun if you get a good response and you show me there's a good response uh, then we do it again definitely we will we will put that out there and we will show you but absolutely there is a a lot more that we would love to chat about and for sure robert if you if you're up for, for part two we'll make the sequel and um, we will we will make it. We will do part two. We will we will more explosions, more uh, more action sequences, and and we will make it. We will bigger and better. Isn't that isn't that what you got to do in Hollywood now? Or <laughs> no, no, I I, I think uh, I'm I'm for 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 quality, not Qu- quantity. Quality, good, good. Yep, yeah, I like that. That's better. Yes. <laughs> and second death. And se- yes. You know. But don't forget, when we did the Bond film, those were all real stunts. Now you got CGI, you get everything. It's all great, it's exciting, but there's something missing. Hmm. <laughs> there's something missing. Some, there's something missing. Something is missing. I can't put my finger on it. Um, yeah, it's it's. We've got some questions. I think that you'll like when it comes to those. So that's a good teasing point. That's we've got to leave the listeners wanting more. So uh, there you go. You sold it well, <laughs> and we'll sell your album well. <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you. Well, it's time to lock this up, put it to bed, and close it off for a, another episode. Thank you for everyone tuning in. Sorry, it's been a bit of a lame kind of episode. It's mainly been me explaining a long-winded situation and having a bit of a rant. But, hey, uh, that's how the cookie crumbles, and that's what you've got here right now. Hopefully, we'll be back next week with another episode. Hopefully, we'll get Mallory on the line for at least some form of uh, interview or something just to see how she's been doing because I think it's important to uh, catch up with her and have a bit of a, an interesting interview. Uh, back, in, back in the early days when we first got her on the show, back when I was in Hobart and she was in Adelaide, this will be like those days. So we'll see how we uh, play out with that. In the meantime, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe, all the relevant podcast channels. And yeah, we uh, hope you're all doing okay out there wherever you are listening in this great big world of ours. My name is Ben. Thanks for listening in. Keep sucking those oranges, Victoria. And good night. Good night.